welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lukas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this podcast, I'm speaking to Professor James Tooley, whose work focuses on unexpected actor in education. He focuses on for-profit schools that serve the world's poorest communities. He has researched them widely, spoken in many different settings to get them on the agenda of the development community and helped to start and run some such for-profit, low-cost schools. In this conversation, we talk about how they work, what they can contribute, and why Professor Truly thinks they provide good evidence for why governments should stay out of education a lot more. I found the conversation very interesting and I hope you will do so too. So enjoy. So actually just briefly about the kind of structure that I envisioned, I'd, I'd first like to talk a bit about your general work on low-cost private schools, starting from the beautiful tree and going more, more towards the present. Then I was very interested in mm -hmm. the TEDx talk you gave a little while ago on education, war and peace. So kind of the specific role of these kinds of schools in contexts of conflicts, and then maybe a bit about your broader personal path that brought you into that work. Mm -hmm. But so to start, I think you spent about the last two decades advocating for low-cost private schools, but as I understand that the start of that was rather almost accidental. So could you tell me a bit about how you started in that space? Yes, and I suppose that word advocate sounds potentially loaded. I mean, I've been very keen to stress all the way through that I've been looking at evidence, I've been looking at desires of parents, particularly poor parents, and sort of responding to them. So it's not that I've been jumping in advocating something that has gone against the evidence and so on. But anyway, that's an aside. So your question is, yes, I, I sort of got involved with this whole area of low-cost private schools accidentally. I mean, in, in the book, The Beautiful Tree, I describe how I, in inverted commas, discovered this phenomenon for myself, definitely by accident. I'd become an expert on private education for various reasons. And um, in those days, it was inconceivable that private education meant anything other than uh, schools, colleges for the elite, or the upper classes, And so I was doing some consultancy for the International Finance Corporation in Hyderabad in India and you know, doing some education consultancy for high-end schools and colleges. It didn't satisfy me for whatever reason I wanted to be working not in that environment. And so on, on one day off, it actually was Republic Day, January the 26th, the year 2000. It was an epiphany for me, so I remember the day very well. I took an auto rickshaw down to the old city where I'd heard that the slums of the old city, uh, the slums of Hyderabad were based, and I went walking in those slums, and I came across a low-cost private school and then another and, and so on. So it was completely by accident, although I had a hunch about this, for reasons I can describe if you want, but um, it was an accident and no one had told me about low-cost private schools. The very idea that they existed was completely unknown and met with considerable denial when nearly 20 years ago now I, I first started telling people about it. So, you know, from that initial discovery for me, um, I then, and as I say, you've got to reflect, no one knew about these schools at the time. I then managed to get some research funding from the John Templeton Foundation to look to see if the same phenomenon exists. Again, we didn't know it existed. They were taking a big punt on me. 
went to see if it existed in poor parts of Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, other parts of India, rural China, and so on and so forth. And eventually I did further studies in Sierra Leone, Liberia, South Sudan, Somalia, and so on. So that, yes, it was an accidental discovery. And um, it was one of those moments where different parts of your life come together. And uh, I really was pleased that that happened. What was it that fascinated you about them? Well, I mean, there, there were several things. One was, this is well known, I've written about this myself. I mean, I'd come out with a philosophy of education PhD um, from the UCL Institute of Education, as it is now. And this, this PhD made me wonder about the role of the state in education, made me very dubious about governments being involved in any part of education. So and that's why I was an expert on private education, you know. But to realize that, you know, the objection to that position is always, well, what about the poor? What about the less privileged in society? They can't afford private education. So your ideas on liberating education, on reclaiming education from the state, and emancipating education, all these things I was talking about, um, this is all nonsense because the poor can't afford it. So to discover that the poor could afford private schools, that there were private schools catering to a price point that the poor could afford, was an extraordinary um, coming together is enough in life that you have a theory about something and then you find the practice reflects that theory. Am, am I making that clear? It's sort of quite, quite a strange mm. sort of position to be in. So that was a first, just purely philosophical. But secondly, for anyone who's worked in the type of environments I'm describing in the slums of Lagos or slums of Accra or Nairobi or Kampala or Delhi, you know, anyone can see that the government schools serving those communities are pretty bad. And once you talk to parents, you realize that their government schools are pretty bad, that they're not desired. And, you know, the extraordinary thing is, an exciting thing for me, was the discovery that parents weren't acquiescing in that mediocrity. They were actually doing something about it. And they were presenting demand for these low-cost private schools. So it was both on a philosophical level, but then on this idea that, okay, this amazing self-help, community self-help from poor communities to create, by an entrepreneur for sure, but to create a low-cost private school to serve those communities. And then thirdly, what was so exciting was once our research started establishing this and lots of other research since, as you know, started establishing that, yeah, parents were sensible in their choice of private school. It wasn't just some fashion or whim. They were doing it because, indeed, these private schools, children in them outperform those in public schools after correcting for all the normal socioeconomic variables. So a huge sort of success story is great to uncover, a success story from parts of Africa in particular where people don't find many success stories. So that was uh, another reason why it was so great to, uh, to do this work. I think what surprised me from when I encountered your work first in The Beautiful Tree was this this notion of discovery, because in a sense, anyone who walks around through these slums, in my case, through townships in South Africa, where, where I spend a bit of time doing research, kind of sees that there are lots of privately run educational initiatives all over the place. So was it just a disconnect yeah. between people who saw that and people doing educational research or were they not seen as schools? What would you say was the actual discovery? Yeah, well... This is a mystery now. And Lucas, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I promise you, with an extremely rare one or two exceptions, you'd be saying to me, James, Professor Judy, you're describing something that doesn't exist. You're making this up, or maybe you found one or two little schools that are there. Now, it's hard to believe this now, because as you say, you've been wandering around these places, you see them for yourself. 
I started wandering around these slums in the poorest places and saw these schools and started going then back to the government, to the uh, the World Bank and the DFID, the Department of International Development and other aid agencies saying, there's an extraordinary thing going on just down the road from your office in the slums. And people said, it's not, it's not true. When I started writing about it in 2000, um, I have found a couple of sources from 1999 which point to the existence of these schools. And obviously I found those after I I found the schools for myself. But hardly anyone was, was acknowledging them. Now, why not? Well, first of all, it's a sad fact that many who work in development are quite happy staying in their offices, you know, in the nice parts of town, or those who visit stay in the nice hotels in the nice part of town and tend not to wander. You've been wandering in the in the townships of South Africa. I've been wandering in these places. But a lot of our development colleagues don't wander in these places. And so they, they get taken by the government or aid agencies to see what the aid agencies are doing. And, you know, 20 years ago, they were all working in government schools. And that's where they got taken to the places they got taken. So that's the first thing. But second, I mean, I've had people who are sympathetic to this idea now who join me now in wanting to celebrate what's going on in these schools and championing them and wanting to, you know, based on evidence, improve them further, but you know, fit in with parental concerns. But I've had people saying to me something like, um, I saw these schools and um, I didn't have a language or a concept to put them in. So somehow I ignored them. You know, I thought it's a strange thing. And of course, the final thing is in South Asia in particular, there is this further confusion that, of course, following that obscure British tradition um, there for a reason. You know, in Britain, we call our elite private schools, we call them public schools. You know that the Eton, Harrows and whatever they're called, public schools. Well, India follows that tradition. So you might go into a slum and see something called um, something like uh, Matthias Public School. And um, so you assume it's a, you know, from outside, you assume it's a government school. In fact, it's just using that name because that's the elite private school. So, I mean, there's various reasons. And to be honest, I'm a bit flabbergasted by it. And it's one of these things where, you know, the longer time goes on and now everyone, almost everyone has heard of these schools. It sort of becomes less convincing. You just have to believe me that people denied the existence of these schools. You know, I, again, I can tell you stories of how, for instance, in Lagos, um, in Nigeria, I gave a talk at a, at a big conference organized by the government on VI, Victoria Island, the posh part of town. And th- then, uh, you know, I gave my talk and then I went back to the one of the slums I was working in, Makoko, after the conference. And um, I noticed as I was traveling back, you know, this is through traffic, um, that someone seemed to be following me. And eventually going into the slum, it was obvious there was a car following you because you, you, know, you can't get many cars. In those days down there, it was a complete dirt track. And um, that was disconcerting. Anyway, we got to one of the schools I'm working with there, got out, and it turned out it was one of the government senior senior bureaucrats, senior civil servants. She'd been at the conference. She heard I was coming this way afterwards, and she'd followed because she'd never been there, and she didn't believe the existence of these schools. So, you know, these things, things happen frequently. Um, I frequently invited people from government or people from aid agencies to come and see these schools for themselves, and they were surprised to find they existed. Now, everyone knows, but in those days, mysterious, I know, but it's mm-hmm. the truth of the matter. Right. I guess the, the locust private schools that you researched, that you're talking about, are a hugely diverse range of institutions from kind of even church schools mm. to these small entrepreneur-run schools to larger chains. What is the typical kind of distribution like when you walk into one of these, these slums? And which of the schools were the ones that most grabbed your interest? 
Yes. Well, I did get data uh, on this from some places. So there are a range of schools, as you say. But the data we got from, let's say, from the slums in Monrovia in Liberia, which, you know, is probably pretty typical of other ones um, in that country. Not so typical, I don't think, of, of slums in Lagos, where it's more emphasized to the entrepreneur. But anyway, from take the figures from Monrovia, um, 61% of the schools we found in the slums were owned by a proprietor, an entrepreneur, um, so you could call them, if you want, for-profit schools. And they were universally of standalone school, not part of a chain. Chains are really unusual, and they're only really found um, very rarely. You won't come across these chains unless you're looking for them in specific areas where you know they exist. So chains are rare, but you know the majority of the schools are run by entrepreneurs. 61% in the Liberia slums, more in the Lagos slums. And then the rest are run by a variety of bodies. So you've got churches, mosques and temples, depending where you are, um, NGOs and non-government organizations, and you can further disaggregate those. And churches are in- interesting, actually. They need to be disaggregated into what I call the established churches, you know, your Catholic church schools and your Methodists and your Anglican and Wesleyan, and the non-established churches, um, which are in a sense, much more like the entrepreneurial-run schools there. If you go into any of these poor parts, of, particularly in Africa, you'll find lots of tiny churches. They're set up by a pastor who probably thinks he's got a vision um, how churches should be run, and he you know, perhaps is broken away from the Methodist church, and he sets up his own individual church in the slum, and typically, usually he will create a, um, a school next to it. So the rest of the the schools, the 40% are a mixture of church, established and non-established, community, NGO, and there'd be local NGOs and international NGOs. Um, so that's a sort of typical picture. But just on these church schools, it's quite interesting to me that the research I've done where we disaggregated in this way, we found on average in our studies that fees in the church schools were typically higher than the fees in the for-profit schools. That was counterintuitive. And the second thing we found that was slightly counterintuitive, I mean, it's counterintuitive because you expect the church schools in some ways to be subsidized and therefore, you know, sort of almost have a missionary element in them. So you'd expect the fees in those to be cheaper than the school fees in schools run by entrepreneurs. Not what we found on average. Um, the entrepreneur schools were cheaper. But the other thing we found, we asked this question, interesting question, does the church subsidize the school? Or does the school subsidize the church? You know, it's sort of, it sounds like a specialist question, but once you sort of got to know a few of these schools, uh, people in the schools a bit better, you realize this was an issue. And it was a, you know, about a third of the, um, a third of the church schools, the school was subsidizing the church rather than the other way around. So it's not all what you, what you see in these spaces. But there are very few chains. Now, there might be a a small number of proprietors who run two or three schools. You could call that a chain, I suppose. And in India, that's more common, I found, than in sub-Saharan Africa. But, you know, it would be a very small, you know, someone has a school in this part of um, the slum and seems to be going quite well, so takes over a school elsewhere or creates a new school in another part of the slum or a different um, poor area. Um, but chain, big chains, you know, the bridge internationals of this world, very unusual. They're only found, um, they're very unusual, yeah. I'd like to come back to them in a moment because you've obviously been involved in some of the chains. Um, but just going back to the point yeah. you just made about fees, that's a fascinating part of it. Something else that you, that you always raise that I find very interesting is that government schools aren't free. 
in fact, once uniforms, books and everything is taken into account. But I still don't really have a sense of how expensive education is, either public or private, when you think about the budget of someone living in a, in a slum in India or, or Nigeria. Can you give me a sense for that? Yeah. Yeah, these are very good points. And, and I, I have written an article, I published it, I think, in the Oxford Review of Education on affordability, which anyone can, can look up. Um, but it, what you've said is absolutely right. So this typical objection to low-cost private schools is how can they be pro-poor when the poor have to pay fees, um, whereas government schools, of course, go pro-poor because they're free, um, is to simplify, to oversimplify matters to the point of... Uh, you know, too great an oversimplification. Because, as you rightly point out, parents who send their children to a government school have to buy <laughs> basics, shoes. You've got to wear shoes to go to a government school. You've got to wear uniform. You've got to buy books. Transportation is quite a big expense because whereas the private schools, the low-cost private schools, are typically in the community itself, um, in poor communities themselves, and, and there are many of them to choose from. So if you're in your street, you're likely to find a low-cost private school. The government schools typically are outside of poor communities or on the edge of these poor communities, so you've got to pay for transportation. And then, you know, these are all costs of the, that are there. And then typically in government schools, there will be some levies, some costs, even if they're not official fees, there might be a building levy or a development levy. And of course, the teachers can also be corrupt and charge children for, for lessons, um, take lessons after school or at the weekends for a fee. So add all these extra costs, you call these extra costs, don't we? Add all these extra costs together. And what you'll find is the they are roughly the same in public and private schools. They are on average, you know, our data shows they are the same in public, in government and private schools. So the fees obviously are much greater in the private schools. These extra costs are the same. Add them together. We found this extraordinary figure that the cost to a parent of sending a child to a government school is roughly three quarters of the cost of sending a child to a low-cost private school. On average, 1.3 times the cost of sending a child to a government school. So there is a difference. Absolutely, there's a difference. But it's not perhaps as marked as one might expect. Now, that's the first part of the discussion. So completely get it out of your mind that sending a child to a government school is free. It is not. And this means the poorest of the poor cannot afford to send their child to a government school, typically and therefore also not to a low-cost private school. So there is a problem for the poorest of the poor. We do need some way of dealing with the poorest of the poor. But anyway, now back to that issue of affordability in general. What does this mean for poor parents? What can they afford? So in this paper that I published in the Oxford Review of Education, we, we showed that we, we defined our, our lowest-cost schools as schools that a family on the poverty line can afford to buy fees for all their children and only spend 10% of their income. That's what we call lowest cost schools. And there are many of these schools available in the slums, not surprisingly. Do you see what I'm saying? That we can actually define low cost private schools linking to parental income and we can find that they are affordable to those on the poverty line, on the, you know, just talking about the, the standard internationally defined poverty lines. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So yeah, food. I'll definitely have a look at the at the article and link to it in the in the show notes. But that's certainly good mm. to hear. Uh, you also already mentioned that the mm. average achievements are, are higher in the low-cost private schools than in the state schools. So for one, the question is, of course, why? And then the question is, how does that work in the absence of any uh, kind of formal quality control? Yes, and this is important. And if you are linking articles, then on this issue of relative uh, performance, again, I it was also in the Oxford Review, I had an article where I looked at a voucher experiment in Andhra Pradesh, which was one of these um, experiments held up as a sort of the gold standard of research, the randomized controlled trial and so on. And it showed children, so let's get it quite right, these are poor children in rural Andhra Pradesh, and the children who were offered a voucher to go from the government schools to the private schools, compared with the children who didn't go to the private schools. And it showed that um, there was no difference in achievement between the two groups, the, as it were, the experimental group, the intervention group rather, and the control group. It showed there was no difference, although the private schools were a third of the cost, so you know, they were much better value for money, but there was no difference in attainment. In this article that I've asked you to link to the, in the Oxford Review, I point out that this gold standard bit of research was actually not quite right because they gave different tests to the children in the private schools typically than in the government schools. Now, you can read all about it in the in the article. But anyway, once you look at the children given the same test, and these were actually the children who were in the Telugu-speaking private schools and the Telugu-speaking government schools, you actually see, again, the result that I've described, a fantastic advantage to the children in the private schools over those in the government schools. Fantastic advantage and all for a third of the cost. So, um, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm not coming out with this, this um, statement that the private schools are better. Um, I'm not coming out with that statement just based on no research or based on my own research. I've taken it very seriously to look at other people's research and critique it where necessary. And I'm perfectly willing to find work that contradicts what I'm saying, but it, I haven't found it yet. So um, that's an important thing. So you were asking, okay, why? Why is that? What your question was? Why would these schools be better? Um, I mean, I, and I think I think the word is you know probably accountability, isn't it? It's undisputed that in the government schools, teachers typically, on average, are higher qualified, more experienced, and better paid than in the private schools. So none of those factors. That first of all, you might think, oh, these the private schools are better because they've got better qualified teachers, they've got more experienced teachers, they've got better paid teachers. No. The low-cost private schools have got less qualified, less experienced, and less well-paid teachers than the government schools. And yet still the results show superiority to the private schools. So it must be something else. And it's I'm not sure any researchers or can. It's quite hard to see how you would design them most. But you know, it must be to do with accountability, mustn't it? If you talk to those running government schools. I've talked to many people in you know, local education authorities, districts and go national governments, and they will say it's impossible to get the teachers to work well. It's impossible to fire a teacher who's doing wrong. Um, research after research, research from the, the recent Nobel Prize, the economics prize winner, um, Michael Kramer and, and his team 
um, I think showed teacher absenteeism in, in countries around the world very high in the local to private schools. I think the figure was often around 50% of teachers, um, only 50%, the teachers were only teaching 50% of the time that they should have been teaching. Whereas if you go to the private schools, well, you're going to find typically teachers teaching. And if a teacher is absent that day or not teaching, well, what will happen? Well, probably the proprietor of that school, the owner of the school, the manager of that school will be sympathetic the first once or twice, you know. The teacher's hasn't turned up and there's probably some good reason for it. The proprietor will be sympathetic. But if it does, if it goes on a second or third time, the proprietor will fire that teacher. And the threat of being fired of course, keeps teachers on their toes. Um, so there's accountability there from teacher to school manager. The parents are paying fees. Now, you know, notwithstanding what I said just now, they are affordable to poor parents, but they're still a significant part of their income and still it's significant they've got to pay this. The um, parents who are paying fees make sure their children do their homework, make sure their children doing the work they should be doing and also ask their children, how was school today? And if a child says the teacher didn't turn up again, or if the teacher says, oh, the child says the teacher, um, you know, left after the half the lesson, or the parent sees the child's notebooks are not being marked, you know, these are all anecdotal stories, but nonetheless real, then the parent will want, you know, will want to know what's going on and will either withdraw the child or talk to the manager. But more importantly, not that the the parents will withdraw their children or talk to the manager. The manager knows this is the psychology of the parents. So make sure the teachers do teach. Make sure the teachers do mark the books and so on and so forth. So this is the accountability that comes through this market transaction, um, which in, is likely to be the reason why these schools are better than the government schools. I'm kind of trying to think of counter arguments because in in a sense the, there's of course the whole yeah. system of school inspections and so on in the, in the public sector but we, what you're saying makes eminent sense so I think I'll I'll just just move on yeah I mean we can have the counter yes what about all these things with school inspections and so on in the public sector and and whilst they might work you know where the regulatory environment is working properly they typically are not working in the countries I'm describing. You know, you don't get school inspections. I, I mean, not never, but typically they don't work in the way that you'd want them to work in government schools in the countries described. And some countries they might be getting better, for sure, but they're, and they're certainly not as good as this accountability that comes from parents who are paying school fees with scarce income. So it state-run educational systems, because have a couple of purposes beyond facilitating learning for individual students. So one thing might be some kind of nation building, and one thing might be developing common frameworks of what should be known and then developing credible certification of that. Mm. Let's maybe start with the second part. So, so do you think it matters whether these, these private schools teach towards state curricula and state exams? Or is it more just about facilitating learning in the way yeah. the children and the parents value it? 
Yeah. And so, so what you're rightly observing in most of these countries we're talking about, possibly all of them, there are national or quasi-national curricula and national exams based on those curricula or quasi-national exams based on those curricula. So that's, that's the situation. And it's totally irrelevant what I think about this. What do parents think if you're a poor parent and you're sending your child to a low-cost private school? Absolutely, you want the child to be following the national curricula so that they can be taking the national exams. Those are the only show in town, typically, for a poor parent. If you're rich, you can take international exams. You take the international baccalaureate or A-levels or whatever if you're rich. If you're wealthy, if you're poor, your child has to take the state or national exams, and therefore you've got to insist the school follows that route. And almost universally, the low-cost private schools I know follow the national curricula and the national take the national exams if they can. Um, you might find unregistered schools cannot do this. So typically, unregistered schools um, uh, get partnership with a local registered school or possibly even a state school and the children will do the exams in those schools rather than in their own basis. Um, so this is an absolute um, you know, demand from parents and it's obvious why it should be the case. Um, so going back to your first point, do, you know, is, aren't there other reasons why governments are involved in education to keep national standards or state building or nation building or whatever? It can be argued that these are legitimate reasons. Myself, I'm not, not sure they are, but it can be argued. And But the way you do that is through compulsory regulations, through compulsory curriculum and state exams connected with those. You don't need to run schools at all in order to do that. What happens in private schools shows that you don't need to do that. They typically do follow the national curriculum because parents want it. So did you see what I'm saying? That it's, it's not a... Um, it's not a reason for states to run schools. At most, it's a reason for states to regulate schools if nation building and, and this sort of thing is what you're after. Yeah, one thing I can think of is that some kind of mixing of students on a slightly larger scale than the, than the slum neighborhood might be worth doing in terms of diffusing ethnic divides. But you could obviously do that through voucher programs or the like. You still don't need to run schools for that. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, let's try and think of the social mixing ideas. So you go to a school on the edge of a slum, like, you know, Olympic school on the edge of Kibera in the Nairobi slums, or the schools, the um, church schools are on, on the edge of the slum in Makopa, Nigeria. Will you get social mixing? Yes, I suppose you, you could get a bit. Is that hugely desirable? It depends what it leads to, doesn't it? If it leads to the richer kids bullying the poorer kids, as I've seen in, in certain places, if it leads to the teachers, side, you know, bullying the poorer kids because of the social distance, as the World Bank calls it, between teachers from richer areas and poorer kids, then probably it's not desirable. You know, probably it's better if the kids gain confidence and you know, self-esteem, you know, without being bullied in this way. If it was some nice, cosy uh, friendships, you know, building friendships across social divides, then probably it would be beneficial. Um, so, you know, it's not clear to me that it's necessarily beneficial, but it could be. And as you say, then, you know, you could have vouchers and so on that, that allowed for this mobility wouldn't necessarily imply government running schools as well. So I think 
yeah, I agree with you on that on that point. <laughs> so, if we take it as as a given that these low cost private schools, in the way you observe them in the field, have all these these beneficial uh, consequences and, and achieve good outcomes, how would you say they can be best supported? Yes, um, I think I would say three things really. One is, well, actually, this is slightly contradicts what I've said earlier that. Um, Everyone knows about these schools now. Well, I still find in some countries or some states of countries, people are less aware of them. So, for example, I'm, I'm hopefully going to start some new research in northern Nigeria next year. And in northern Nigeria, it seems there's a lot of ignorance about these schools, whether they exist or not, and what contribution they're playing. So we still do need to do research in new areas, and, and eastern Nigeria too. So the point I'm trying to make is, first of all, let's find out, let's be totally sure of what the contribution of these schools is, how many they are, what proportion of the school-age population they're serving, if we can, how good they are, and so on. These are all important points that we want to keep in mind, that we want to uh, make sure we have the full range of information about these schools, first of all. Secondly, government's instincts are often to regulate and over-regulate these schools and sometimes to close them down. So recently I was in Rivers State in Nigeria where the, in Port Harcourt, where the Ministry of Education is trying, or the governor or the commissioner, I can't remember, is trying to close these schools down. I heard a similar story from Cameroon. I've heard a similar story from Ondo State and, and so on. So still, we have to stop governments closing these schools down, but also regulating them out of existence. So regulations typically focus on inputs, how well trained your teachers are, how big your playground is, when these things, research shows, are not relevant to school performance. And it's much better to think about, if you're going to regulate at all, focus or at least look at outcomes. But uh, a liberalised regulatory environment is better. Um, so that's the second area. So first, we need information. Second, avoid regulation. And then third, there's, there are lots of things one can do. And in The Beautiful Tree, which was written before people started doing all this stuff, um, I mentioned lots of things in the last chapter, you know, revolving loan funds. Um, governments and philanthropists and can help create a loan fund that schools can borrow from to improve their infrastructure, build separate toilets for boys and girls, build a computer lab, whatever it is they need to do, and then pay back, and then other schools can borrow from that fund. That's a really great and simple thing that a government can do and um, go for it. Secondly, you can look at some sort of targeted vouchers for the poorest of the poor, which, remember, I said, you know, there is some issue with not being able to afford neither private nor government schooling. Perhaps some targeted vouchers or cash transfers aimed at the poorest of the poor could be a good way forward. So, so there are lots of possibilities of interventions to help these schools improve further. But I, I don't like it when people come in and say, we're going to help these schools improve because they're not any good. No, we're helping them improve further. They are good. They are better than the alternatives in many cases. But of course, they can be helped improve further. And one way to do it is through these types of things I've described already. Okay, and you have been quite involved in kind of setting up some of the chains that now exist, advising some of the other chains. Uh, what do you see as their role? Yes, so 10 years ago, you know, around a decade ago, so having worked in this area for, having worked in the area for nearly 10 years, it was always obvious to me that one thing one could 
try to raise standards further was to create change in these schools because that way it seemed you could raise big investment for the schools and that, you know, as an individual school could not afford to do curriculum development, teacher training of high quality all on its own. But if you've got a group of 20 schools together, took this little bit of surplus from each of those 20 schools, then you could afford more curriculum development and more teacher training and so on. And if you had a 200 schools, even more. And a chain of 200 schools could attract investment in the way that a standalone school is unlikely to because the surpluses in these schools are going to be very, very small, a couple of thousand dollars a year. That's not attractive an outside investor. But if you multiply that by 200, soon you're talking real money, as it were. So it was always seemed sensible to me. So I did, you know, I encouraged um, uh, Jay Kilmerman when he came to visit me in Newcastle 2007, I think it was, I encouraged him to start, 2006 maybe, to start a chain of schools in, in Kenya, which was obviously became Bridge International, the largest chain of schools anywhere in the world. I myself, with a brilliant entrepreneur in, in Ghana, started, um, co-founded a chain of schools there, Omega Schools. And, you know, these have been successful. Um, others have started all in different countries around the world, and I've started a couple in India and um, one in Honduras, Central America, and a couple more in um, in Africa. Um, so, you know, they have been, I think they're interesting. I think probably the jury's still out whether standalone schools or chains as they exist currently are better. I think there was some really interesting research from Lagos State recently in Nigeria, which was there to compare the bridge international low-cost private schools with the existing low-cost private schools and the government school. And the research was fascinating in literacy, as you know, as one expected, bridge international, they were top, followed by the low-cost private schools, followed closely by the low-cost private schools, and then a long way behind was the were the government schools. But in mathematics, it was really interesting. Actually, on top were the low-cost private schools, but there was you know, virtually no, no difference between them and and the bridge schools and government schools were way behind. So, you know, in terms of mathematics achievements, it seems that the existing low-cost private schools are doing fine, you know, compared to all the alternatives. And you didn't need that sort of international chain in order to gain higher achievement. So, you know, I, I think that probably the jury is still out. I think it's quite exciting, the existence of chains. Certainly, no one is harmed by the existence of chains, I don't think, Probably children are are benefited, um, but I'm also you know, what, something that I haven't shouted about so much in the past, and you, you may not have picked up. So I probably haven't published anything about this. But I've also helped create associations or been involved in associations. These are voluntary federations, as it were, of low cost private schools. And actually, some of my most rewarding work has been in those. I'm the patron, the international patron of AFID, a wonderful Nigerian name, the Association of Formidable Education Development in based in Lagos. There's 5,000 active school members. That's nearly, you know, that's a half a million kids in those schools. I feel, you know, that that's also, that also helps with improving schools through curriculum development, through assessment, through teacher training, through, you know, raising funds for loans and other things. And for me, that sort of voluntary non-profit mechanism as, is as exciting as the, the chains mechanisms. And, um, you know, I see a lot of potential in those organizations to really improve standards. 
if I had more time and you know, perhaps someone can help me with this one day, I'd really like to create an international federation of low-cost private schools. Um, rather like I, I'm in great awe of Education International, which is, as you know, the international body of teacher unions, the sort of the umbrella group for teacher unions around the world. They're incredibly active and impressive in the way they can get on the top table for everything. I would like to see an international federation of private educators, low-cost private educators, having similar power and influence as Education International. Perhaps we call it Private Education International. But you see what I'm saying? So, yes, standalone schools are good. The chains are interesting and, you know, seem to be good. But federations are also good. And I'm excited about all three. Yeah, to me, the federations sound very interesting. So when I think back to reading The Beautiful yeah. Tree, what really struck me was the enthusiasm of these entrepreneur owners mm. to also do something for their communities and, and really have that local ownership, which I guess is a bit hard to yes. to sustain in an international chain. And of course, in the federation, you, you might be able yes. to bring the best stuff of those two things. Yes, I think you're absolutely right there. Yes, that's, as you say, the enthusiasm that's there that I relay, hopefully, in the beautiful tree for a, you know, a proprietor from the community it's, itself serving that community that's very hard to replicate as you say in a chain you can at most have a school manager the school manager can have some incentives to but the incentives of an entrepreneur are always going to be much greater and as you say a federation can bring together schools so share good practice as well as not get in the way of that individual entrepreneurship so yes it could well be you know i'm happy you're excited by it because to me it is a very exciting thing and i'm I'm off to Nigeria in a week or two to do some work with AFED again. And um, yeah, it's almost one of the roles I treasure most that I have as international patron there. Okay, I'd, I'd like to jump quite a long time uh, back briefly and ask you about the time you spent teaching in Zimbabwe. Uh, what, what your learnings from that mm. were and how that shaped your path? Now, that's a very long time ago. And uh, so I was a young man um, in my 20s, just finished uh, my degree in mathematics. And uh, Zimbabwe was newly independent. It was independent in 1980. It was 83 when I finished my degree. And they were advertising for teachers, especially mathematics teachers. So off I went to sort of my first adventurous move, really, as a young man. I can't, you know, it, it, I certainly didn't learn about anything that informed my life later on in terms of private versus public. I was not really aware of that difference there. I was very much working in the government sector. I was very enthusiastic about that. And uh, I had no learnings. I certainly didn't see any low-cost private schools. I certainly didn't look for them. Certainly wasn't aware of them. And I was very much into supporting the, the government sector then. Um, it, for me, it was a great experience living three years in, in Africa, in a country that was going through dramatic change, and obviously it informed my later work. But I don't think I can help you in terms of the podcast. I mean, I was a young socialist in those days. I, was, I attended two um, Das Capital reading groups while I was there. I used to help in cooperatives on the weekends and so on. You know, I was very much on the other side, as it were. And it was only coming back from Zimbabwe and then eventually doing my PhD at what's now UCL Institute of Education that I discovered a book in the library called Education and the State by E.G. West, Professor Edwin George West. And that's really what changed my life. So it was actually a very intellectual change because he basically described as an idea, the book's called Education and the State, but he actually described 
a world of education without the state. And in particular, he looked at historical evidence which showed that the Newcastle Commission is the key bit of work you should look at um, from 18, published 1861, did research in 1858. It showed that the vast majority, 95.5% of children, were in school for an average of six years before the state got involved in 1870. Next year is the 150th anniversary of state education in England and Wales. But before it got involved, there was almost universal private provision. And looking at it in terms of the framework we have today, of course, we describe many of those schools as low-cost private schools. They were called, actually in the Newcastle Commission, they were called the for-profit schools. Elsewhere, they're called the adventure schools. In the infant school level, they were called dame schools. They were all disparaging terms, but they were serving many of the poor communities. And when I told you at the beginning of this interview that I went out into the slums of Hyderabad with a hunch about what I might find. It was because of reading E.G. West that changed my life. He described that what we call now the low-cost private schools in the slums of Victorian England and Wales, the slums of Manchester, Newcastle, London, and so on. And I wondered if there would be low-cost private schools in the slums of India today. So that's why I had a hunch about what I might find. And the amazing thing was I did find these schools and they were there. And um, as, as you might say, the rest is history. Uh, now that you that you are bringing up education here, I read that you helped to set up a low-cost private school in the UK in Durham quite quite recently. I was wondering why, why that is, because clearly teachers show up here, there's some degree of accountability. So why do we need that here? Yes. So this is, again, a lot of my life has been about serendipity, uh, not necessarily planning. But well, a couple of things about this. So, so first of all, once I started talking about this work, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I'd, I'd be at a conference in America or Britain, and I'd say about what I'd found in the rest of the world. And some, you know, what, what someone would always ask, it's one of the frequently asked questions, why don't we have low-cost private schools here, here in England, here in America? And my answer was always, I don't think there'd be any demand for them for precisely the reasons you've said, you know, government schools are not that bad. They're perfectly tolerable, if not good. And in any case, there's always, a, as it were, a safety valve for those parents who are dissatisfied with government schools. They can set up in America charter schools, in England, free schools. So, and these are state funded, as it were, independent schools. So I was always of the impression that probably this wouldn't be, they wouldn't be relevant here. Although, you know, to be fair, I always thought about it. Was there something going on here and would there be a market for it? this here. But a few years back, I couldn't travel for various reasons. If you're putting links in the book, you can put in this podcast, you can put a link to um, a book I published called Imprisoned in India, which will explain why I couldn't travel for a bit. And um, I um, then, because I, you know, I'm just a one trick pony, I've got a one track mind. I decided to go out on the streets of Newcastle and ask parents, you know, marketplaces on, you know, would they like private schools? Typically, the answer is yes. We'd love to send our child to private school a lot. Why? Because for various reasons, we don't like the state school. It's not that it's bad, like I described, but it's not good enough. So why don't you send your private school? Duh, we can't afford private school. What could you afford? And I got a sense when I went back to my office and did some spreadsheets that actually what they could afford, many parents, was actually what I could afford as an entrepreneur, not making any money, but at least breaking even with minimal investment. So it was really 
sort of those, uh, and then I managed to find a couple of others who were interested up north. One had been a very experienced private school principal, and one who had a lot slightly more money than the rest of us. And so we decided to do it here, really to to offer a third way. I mean, the more we got talking to parents, the more unhappy they seemed to be, actually. Um, and so we decided to offer this third way. And, you know, we're happy that um, we've demonstrated that something like this can work, even in England. Um, we'd love to see, you know, I'd like to encourage many more people to come into the sector and not necessarily doing as low fees as we're doing up north. We're £3,000 a year. You can maybe run schools for £5,000 a year, £6,000 a year, but filling in the gaps between the incredibly expensive private education we're used to in this country now and what people can afford. Private education is only affordable by those in the top quintile, probably the top decile now of income. I like to see private education more um, affordable and, you know, I've made a first stab at that up north now. Mm-hmm. And if you want to put a link in there, of course, it's the Independent Grammar School Durham is the, the link. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I have two two final questions for you, because there would be a very obvious answer to the first one, but I'm curious what your answer is. Um, is there any advice you would give your, yourself in your 20s, now with the benefit of hindsight? So much advice, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not one of these sort of people who says I have no regrets. Regrets, I have a few too many, you know. Um, but uh, it, but in terms of this context, it was fine. Working in Africa was a good introduction to what I did later on in life, and at least being open to new ideas, as I was when I, you know, read Education in the States and, and so on, was good in my late twenties, early thirties. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything there. Of course, I have many regrets, but actually being open to new ideas and being open to working in Africa, yeah, those, those were good things to have done. Okay, and if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it to get a message out, what would it say? I, I think, I mean, just a quick response, obviously, you could think about this more carefully, but it would be a question, you know. I want people to question, why is the state involved in education? That would be a question, why? Why state education? Why public education in America? And I think if people started thinking about that, of course, what I want to emphasise that low-cost private schools here are, that I'm you know, running here, are of course, very different from low-cost private schools in India and Africa. It's not the same principle. It's not talking about poor communities. This is very much you know, um, much more of a talking about an affordable, bringing the price down slightly from existing provision rather than doing what I've been doing in Africa and India. Okay, thank you very much. It's definitely a lot of fascinating content for me. So, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Next time, inspired by the current global crisis, I'll be speaking to Lord Jim Knight. He was Education Minister in the UK under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and back then he already worked to bridge the digital divide between students from richer and poorer households. Nowadays, he is Chief Education Officer at TESS Global, a company that supports hundreds of thousands of teachers and supports them at the moment to deal with the lockdown, to deal with a situation where millions of students are out of school. 
So we talk about what school closures mean for students, teachers and parents, what the priorities are when schools will finally reopen, and what lessons this might hold to transform education, to transform the system into a system that works for everyone. So stay tuned and stay safe.